If you would follow on to know the Lord, come at once to the open Bible expecting it to speak to you. Do not come with the notion that it is a thing which you may push around at your convenience. It is more than a thing. It is a voice, a word, the very word of the living God. Lord, teach me to listen. The times are noisy, and my ears are weary with the thousand raucous sounds which continuously assault them. Give me the spirit of the boy Samuel, when he said to thee, Speak, for thy servant heareth. Let me hear thee speaking in my heart. Let me get used to the sound of thy voice, that its tones may be familiar when the sounds of earth die away, and the only sound will be the music of thy speaking voice. Amen. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us think of our intelligent plain man, mentioned in chapter 6, coming for the first time to the reading of the Scriptures. He approaches the Bible without any previous knowledge of what it contains. He is wholly without prejudice. He has nothing to prove and nothing to defend. Such a man will not have read long until his mind begins to observe certain truths standing out from the page. They are the spiritual principles behind the record of God's dealings with men and woven into the writings of holy men as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. As he reads on, he might want to number these truths as they become clear to him and make a brief summary under each number. These summaries will be the tenets of his biblical creed. Further reading will not affect these points except to enlarge and strengthen them. Our man is finding out what the Bible actually teaches. High up on the list of things which the Bible teaches will be the doctrine of faith. The place of weighty importance which the Bible gives to faith will be too plain for him to miss. He will very likely conclude, Faith is all important in the life of the soul. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith will get me anything, take me anywhere in the kingdom of God. But without faith there can be no approach to God. No forgiveness, no deliverance, no salvation, no communion, no spiritual life at all. By the time our friend has reached the eleventh chapter of Hebrews, the eloquent enconium which is there pronounced upon faith will not seem strange to him. He will have read Paul's powerful defense of faith in his Roman and Galatian epistles. Later, if he goes on to study church history, he will understand the amazing power in the teachings of the Reformers as they showed the central place of faith in the Christian religion. Now, if faith is so vitally important, if it is an indispensable must in our pursuit of God, it is perfectly natural that we should be deeply concerned over whether or not we possess this most precious gift. And our minds being what they are, it is inevitable that sooner or later we should get around to inquiring after the nature of faith. What is faith? Would lie close to the question, do I have faith? And would demand an answer if it were anywhere to be found. Almost all who preach or write on the subject of faith have much the same things to say concerning it. They tell us that it is believing a promise, that it is taking God at His word, that it is reckoning the Bible to be true and stepping out upon it. 
The rest of the book, or sermon, is usually taken up with stories of persons who have had their prayers answered as a result of their faith. These answers are mostly direct gifts of a practical and temporal nature, such as health, money, physical protection, or success in business. Or, if the teacher is of a philosophic turn of mind, he may take another course and lose us in a welter of metaphysics, or snow us under with psychological jargon as he defines and redefines, paring the slender hair of faith thinner and thinner till it disappears in gossamer shavings at last. When he is finished, we get up disappointed and go out by that same door wherein we went. Surely there must be something better than this. In the scriptures, there is practically no effort made to define faith. Outside of a brief 14-word definition in Hebrews 11.1, 1, I know of no biblical definition, and even there faith is defined functionally, not philosophically. That is, it is a statement of what faith is in operation, not what it is in essence. It assumes the presence of faith and shows what it results in, rather than what it is. We will be wise to go just that far and attempt to go no further. We are told from whence it comes and by what means. Faith is a gift of God, and faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. This much is clear, and, to paraphrase Thomas Akempis, I had rather exercise faith than know the definition thereof. From here on, when the words faith is, or their equivalent occur in this chapter, I ask that they be understood to refer to what faith is in operation, as exercised by a believing man. Right here, we drop the notion of definition, and think about faith as it may be experienced in action. The complexion of our thoughts will be practical, not theoretical. In a dramatic story in the book of Numbers, faith is seen in action. Israel became discouraged and spoke against God, and the Lord sent fiery serpents among them. And they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Then Moses sought the Lord for them, and he heard and gave them a remedy against the bite of the serpents. He commanded Moses to make a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole in sight of all the people. And it shall come to pass, that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Moses obeyed. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Numbers, chapter 21, verse 4 through 9. In the New Testament, this important bit of history is interpreted for us by no less an authority than our Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is explaining to his hearers how they may be saved. He tells them that it is by believing. Then, to make it clear, he refers to this incident in the book of Numbers. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Our plain man, in reading this, would make an important discovery. He would notice that look and believe were synonymous terms. Looking on the Old Testament serpent is identical with believing on the New Testament Christ. That is, the looking and the believing are the same thing. 
and he would understand that while Israel looked with their external eyes, believing is done with the heart. I think he would conclude that faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. When he had seen this, he would remember passages he had read before, and their meaning would come flooding over him. They looked unto him, and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. Psalm 34, verse 5. Unto thee I lift up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hands of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God, until that he have mercy upon us. Psalm 123, verses 1 and 2. Here the man seeking mercy looks straight at the God of mercy, and never takes his eyes away from him till mercy is granted. And our Lord himself looked always at God. Looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the bread to his disciples. Matthew chapter 14 verse 19. Indeed, Jesus taught that he wrought his works by always keeping his inward eyes upon his Father. His power lay in his continuous look at God. John chapter 5 verse 19 through 21. In full accord with the few texts we have quoted is the whole tenor of the inspired word. It is summed up for us in the Hebrew epistle when we are instructed to run life's race, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. From all this, we learn that faith is not a once-done act, but a continuous gaze of the heart at the triune God. Believing, then, is directing the heart's attention to Jesus. It is lifting the mind to behold the Lamb of God, and never ceasing that beholding for the rest of our lives. At first, this may be difficult, but it becomes easier as we look steadily at his wondrous person, quietly and without strain. Distractions may hinder, but once the heart is committed to him, after each brief excursion away from him, the attention will return again and rest upon him like a wandering bird coming back to its window. I would emphasize this one committal, this one great volitional act, which establishes the heart's intention to gaze forever upon Jesus. God takes this attention for our choice and makes what allowances he must for the thousand distractions which beset us in this evil world. He knows that we have set the direction of our hearts toward Jesus, and we can know it too, and comfort ourselves with the knowledge that a habit of soul is forming, which will become, after a while, a sort of spiritual reflex, requiring no more conscious effort on our part. Faith is the least self-regarding of the virtues. It is, by its very nature, scarcely conscious of its own existence. Like the eye which sees everything in front of it and never sees itself, faith is occupied with the object upon which it rests and pays no attention to itself at all. While we are looking at God, we do not see ourselves. Blessed riddance. The man who has struggled to purify himself and has had nothing but repeated failures will experience real relief when he stops tinkering with his soul and looks away to the perfect one. While he looks at Christ, the very things he has so long been trying to do will be getting done within him. It will be God working in him to will and to do. Faith is not in itself a meritorious act. 
The merit is in the one toward whom it is directed. Faith is a redirecting of our sight, a getting out of the focus of our own vision and getting God into focus. Sin has twisted our vision inward and made it self-regarding. Unbelief has put self where God should be and is perilously close to the sin of Lucifer, who said, I will set my throne above the throne of God. Faith looks out instead of in, and the whole life falls into line. All this may seem too simple, but we have no apology to make. To those who would seek to climb into heaven after help, or descend into hell, God says, The word is nigh thee, even the word of faith. The word induces us to lift up our eyes unto the Lord, and the blessed work of faith begins. When we lift our inward eyes to gaze upon God, we are sure to meet friendly eyes gazing back at us. For it is written that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout all the earth. The sweet language of experience is, Thou God seest me. When the eyes of the soul looking out meet the eyes of God looking in, heaven has begun right here on this earth. When all my endeavor is turned toward thee, because all thy endeavor is turned toward me, when I look unto thee alone with all my attention, nor even turn aside the eyes of my mind, because thou dost enfold me with thy constant regard, when I direct my love toward thee alone, because thou, who art love's self, hast turned thee toward me alone. And what, Lord, is my life, save that embrace wherein thy delightsome sweetness doth so lovingly enfold me? So wrote Nicholas of Cusa four hundred years ago. I should like to say more about this old man of God. He is not much known today anywhere among Christian believers, and among current fundamentalists he is known not at all. I feel that we could gain much from a little acquaintance with men of his spiritual flavor and the school of Christian thought which they represent. Christian literature, to be accepted and approved by the evangelical leaders of our times, must follow very closely the same train of thought, a kind of party line from which it is scarcely safe to depart. A half-century of this in America has made us smug and content. We imitate each other with slavish devotion, and our most strenuous efforts are put forth to try to say the same thing that everyone around us is saying, and yet to find an excuse for saying it, some little safe variation on the approved theme, or, if no more, at least a new illustration. Nicholas was a true follower of Christ, a lover of the Lord, radiant and shining in his devotion to the person of Jesus. His theology was orthodox, but fragrant and sweet, as everything about Jesus might properly be expected to be. His conception of eternal life, for instance, is beautiful in itself, and, if I mistake not, is nearer in spirit to John 17.3 than that which is current among us today. Life eternal, says Nicholas, is not other than that blessed regard wherewith thou never ceasest to behold me, yea, even the secret places of my soul. With thee, to behold is to give life. Tis unceasingly to impart sweetest love of thee. Tis to inflame me to love of thee by love's imparting, and to feed me by inflaming, and by feeding 
to kindle my yearning, and by kindling to make me drink of the dew of gladness, and by drinking to infuse in me a fountain of life, and by infusing to make it increase and endure. Now, if faith is the gaze of the heart at God, and if this gaze is but the raising of the inward eyes to meet the all-seeing eyes of God, then it follows that it is one of the easiest things possible to do. It would be like God to make the most vital thing easy and place it within the range of possibility for the weakest and poorest of us. Several conclusions may be fairly drawn from all this. The simplicity of it, for instance. Since believing is looking, it can be done without special equipment or religious paraphernalia. God has seen to it that the one life and death essential can never be subject to the caprice of accident. Equipment can break down or get lost. Water can leak away. Records can be destroyed by fire. The minister can be delayed or the church burned down. All these are external to the soul and are subject to accident or mechanical failure. But looking is of the heart and can be done successfully by any man standing up or kneeling down or lying in his last agony a thousand miles from any church. Since believing is looking, it can be done any time. No season is superior to another season for this sweetest of all acts. God never made salvation depend upon new moons, nor holy days or Sabbaths. A man is not nearer to Christ on Easter Sunday than he is, say, on Saturday, August 3rd, or Monday, October 4th. As long as Christ sits on the mediatorial throne, every day is a good day, and all days are days of salvation. Neither does place matter in this blessed work of believing God. Lift your heart and let it rest upon Jesus, and you are instantly in a sanctuary, though it be a Pullman berth or a factory or a kitchen. You can see God from anywhere if your mind is set to love and obey Him. Now, someone may ask, is not this of which you speak for special persons, such as monks or ministers who have by the nature of their calling more time to devote to quiet meditation? I am a busy worker and have little time to spend alone. I am happy to say that the life I describe is for everyone of God's children, regardless of calling. It is, in fact, happily practiced every day by many hard-working persons and is beyond the reach of none. Many have found the secret of which I speak, and, without giving much thought to what is going on within them, constantly practice this habit of inwardly gazing upon God. They know that something inside their hearts sees God. Even when they are compelled to withdraw their conscious attention in order to engage in earthly affairs, there is within them a secret communion always going on. Let their attention but be released for a moment from necessary business, and it flies at once to God again. This has been the testimony of many Christians, so many that even as I state it thus, I have a feeling that I am quoting, though from whom or from how many I cannot possibly know. I do not want to leave the impression that the ordinary means of grace have no value. They most assuredly have. Private prayer should be practiced by every Christian. Long periods of Bible meditation will purify our gaze and direct it, Church attendance will enlarge our outlook and increase our love for others. Service and work and activity, all are good 
and should be engaged in by every Christian. But at the bottom of all these things, giving meaning to them, will be the inward habit of beholding God. A new set of eyes, so to speak, will develop within us, enabling us to be looking at God while our outward eyes are seeing the scenes of this passing world. Someone may fear that we are magnifying private religion out of all proportion, that the us of the New Testament is being displaced by a selfish I. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshippers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity-conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. The body becomes stronger as its members become healthier. The whole church of God gains when the members that compose it begin to seek a better and a higher life. All the foregoing presupposes true repentance and a full committal of the life to God. It is hardly necessary to mention this, for only persons who have made such a committal will have read this far. When the habit of inwardly gazing Godward becomes fixed within us, we shall be ushered onto a new level of spiritual life, more in keeping with the promises of God and the mood of the New Testament. The triune God will be our dwelling place, even while our feet walk the low road of simple duty here among men. We will have found life's summum bonum indeed. There is the source of all delights that can be desired. Not only can not better be thought out by men and angels, but not better can exist in mode of being. For it is the absolute maximum of every rational desire, than which a greater cannot be. O Lord, I have heard a good word inviting me to look away to Thee and be satisfied. My heart longs to respond, but sin has clouded my vision till I see Thee but dimly. Be pleased to cleanse me in Thine own precious blood, and make me inwardly pure, so that I may with unveiled eyes gaze upon Thee all the days of my earthly pilgrimage. Then shall I be prepared to behold Thee in full splendor in the day when thou shalt appear, to be glorified in thy saints, and admired in all them that believe. Amen. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew, chapter 5, verse 5. A fairly accurate description of the human race might be furnished for one unacquainted with it by taking the Beatitudes, turning them wrong side out, and saying, here is your human race. For the exact opposite of the virtues in the Beatitudes are the very qualities which distinguish human life and conduct. In the world of men, we find nothing approaching the virtues of which Jesus spoke in the opening words of the famous Sermon on the Mount. Instead of poverty of spirit, we find the rankest kind of pride. Instead of mourners, we find pleasure-seekers. Instead of meekness, arrogance. Instead of hunger after righteousness, we hear men saying, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Instead of mercy, we find cruelty. Instead of purity of heart, 
corrupt imaginings. Instead of peacemakers, we find men quarrelsome and resentful. Instead of rejoicing in mistreatment, we find them fighting back with every weapon at their command. Of this kind of moral stuff, civilized society is composed. The atmosphere is charged with it. We breathe it with every breath and drink it with our mother's milk. Culture and education refine these things slightly, but leave them basically untouched. A whole world of literature has been created to justify this kind of life as the only normal one. And this is the more to be wondered at, seeing that these are the evils which make life the bitter struggle it is for all of us. All our heartaches, and a great many of our physical ills spring directly out of our sins. Pride, arrogance, resentfulness, evil imaginings, malice, greed. These are the sources of more human pain than all the diseases that ever afflicted mortal flesh. Into a world like this, the sound of Jesus' words come wonderful and strange, a visitation from above. It is well that he spoke, for no one else could have done it as well, and it is good that we listen. His words are the essence of truth. He is not offering an opinion. Jesus never uttered opinions. He never guessed. He knew, and he knows. His words are not as Solomon's were, the sum of sound wisdom or the results of keen observation. He spoke out of the fullness of his Godhead, and his words are very truth itself. He is the only one who could say, Blessed, with complete authority, for he is the Blessed One, come from the world above to confer blessedness upon mankind. And his words were supported by deeds mightier than any performed on this earth by any other man. It is wisdom for us to listen. As was so often with Jesus, he used this word, meek, in a brief, crisp sentence, and not till some time later did he go on to explain it. In the same book of Matthew, he tells us more about it and applies it to our lives. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Here we have two things standing in contrast to each other, a burden and a rest. The burden is not a local one, peculiar to those first hearers, but one which is borne by the whole human race. It consists not of political oppression, or poverty, or hard work. It is far deeper than that. It is felt by the rich as well as the poor, for it is something from which wealth and idleness can never deliver us. The burden borne by mankind is a heavy and a crushing thing. The word Jesus used means a load carried, or toil borne to the point of exhaustion. Rest is simply release from that burden. It is not something we do. It is what comes to us when we cease to do. His own meekness... That is the rest. Let us examine our burden. It is altogether an interior one. It attacks the heart and the mind, and reaches the body only from within. First, there is the burden of pride. The labor of self-love is a heavy one indeed. Think for yourself whether much of your sorrow has not arisen from someone speaking slightingly of you. 
As long as you set yourself up as a little god to which you must be loyal, there will be those who will delight to offer affront to your idol. How then can you hope to have inward peace? The heart's fierce effort to protect itself from every slight, to shield its touchy honor from the bad opinion of friend and enemy, will never let the mind have rest. Continue this fight through the years, and the burden will become intolerable. Yet the sons of earth are carrying this burden continually, challenging every word spoken against them, cringing under every criticism, smarting under each fancied slight, tossing sleepless if another is preferred before them. Such a burden as this is not necessary to bear. Jesus calls us to his rest, and meekness is his method. The meek man cares not at all who is greater than he, for he has long ago decided that the esteem of the world is not worth the effort. He develops toward himself a kindly sense of humor and learns to say, Oh, so you have been overlooked? They have placed someone else before you? They have whispered that you are pretty small stuff after all? And now you feel hurt because the world is saying about you the very things you have been saying about yourself? Only yesterday you were telling God that you are nothing, a mere worm of the dust. Where is your consistency? Come on, humble yourself, and cease to care what men think. The meek man is not a human mouse, afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion, and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God has declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is, in the sight of God, of more importance than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. That is his motto. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him, and he has stopped caring. He rests perfectly content to allow God to place his own values. He will be patient to wait for the day when everything will get its own price tag and real worth will come into its own. Then the righteous shall shine forth in the kingdom of their father. He is willing to wait for that day. In the meantime, he will have attained a place of soul rest. As he walks on in meekness, he will be happy to let God defend him. The old struggle to defend himself is over. He has found the peace which meekness brings. Then also he will get deliverance from the burden of pretense. By this I mean not hypocrisy, but the common human desire to put the best foot forward and hide from the world our real inward poverty. For sin has played many evil tricks upon us, and one has been the infusing into us a false sense of shame. There is hardly a man or woman who dares to be just what he or she is without doctoring up the impression. The fear of being found out gnaws like rodents within their hearts. The man of culture is haunted by the fear that he will someday come upon a man more cultured than himself. The learned man fears to meet a man more learned than he. The rich man sweats under the fear that his clothes, or his car, or his house will sometime be made to look cheap by comparison with those of another rich man. So-called society runs by a motivation not higher than this, and the poorer classes on their level are little better. 
let no one smile this off. These burdens are real, and little by little they kill the victims of this evil and unnatural way of life. And the psychology created by years of this kind of thing makes true meekness seem as unreal as a dream, as aloof as a star. To all the victims of the gnawing disease, Jesus says, Ye must become as little children. For little children do not compare. They receive direct enjoyment from what they have without relating it to something else or someone else. Only as they get older and sin begins to stir within their hearts do jealousy and envy appear. Then they are unable to enjoy what they have if someone else has something larger or better. At that early age does the galling burden come down upon their tender souls, and it never leaves them till Jesus sets them free. Another source of burden is artificiality. I am sure that most people live in secret fear that some day they will be careless, and by chance an enemy or friend will be allowed to peep into their poor empty souls. So they are never relaxed. Bright people are tense and alert in fear that they may be trapped into saying something common or stupid. Traveled people are afraid that they may meet some Marco Polo, who is able to describe some remote place where they have never been. This unnatural condition is part of our sad heritage of sin. But in our day, it is aggravated by our whole way of life. Advertising is largely based upon this habit of pretense. Courses are offered in this or that field of human learning, frankly appealing to the victim's desire to shine at a party. Books are sold. Clothes and cosmetics are peddled by playing continually upon this desire to appear what we are not. Artificiality is one curse that will drop away the moment we kneel at Jesus' feet and surrender ourselves to his meekness. Then we will not care what people think of us so long as God is pleased. Then what we are will be everything. What we appear will take its place far down the scale of interest for us. Apart from sin, we have nothing of which to be ashamed. Only an evil desire to shine makes us want to appear other than we are. The heart of the world is breaking under this load of pride and pretense. There is no release from our burden apart from the meekness of Christ. Good, keen reasoning may help slightly, but so strong is this vice that if we push it down one place, it will come up somewhere else. To men and women everywhere, Jesus says, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. The rest he offers is the rest of meekness, the blessed relief which comes when we accept ourselves for what we are and cease to pretend. It will take some courage at first, but the needed grace will come as we learn that we are sharing this new and easy yoke with the strong Son of God himself. He calls it my yoke and he walks at one end while we walk at the other. Lord, make me childlike. Deliver me from the urge to compete with another for place or prestige or position. I would be simple and artless as a little child. Deliver me from pose and pretense. Forgive me for thinking of myself. Help me to forget myself and find my true peace in beholding Thee. That Thou mayest answer this prayer, I humble myself before Thee. 
Lay upon me thy easy yoke of self-forgetfulness, that through it I may find rest. Amen.